Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today's show was recorded live from Alts LA in partnership with Kaya. Kaya is the leading global professional body dedicated to alternative investment credential programs. On this episode, we speak with Christopher Ailman, the Chief Investment Officer at Calsters. We discuss the current state of private markets, why alternative investments make sense in an investor's portfolio, and how the retailization of alts impacts institutional investors like large pensions and endowments. Christopher leads an investment staff of more than 200 people and oversees a portfolio valued at over $280 billion. He has more than 37 years of institutional investment experience, including tenures as CIO of the Washington State Investment Board and the Sacramento County Employees Retirement System. He represents institutional investors on the MSCI Index Editorial Advisory Board, the PRI Asset Owners Advisory Committee, and the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Investor Advisory Group, and the Toyco Foundation. He is the chair of the 300 Club and the co-chair of the Milken Global Capital Markets Committee. Christopher is recognized as one of the top CEOs, both in the U.S. and globally, and he's received numerous awards and recognitions, including the Institute for Fiduciary Education CIO of the Year in 2000. Thanks, Christopher, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your views and knowledge. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at altgoesmainstream.substack.com. Chris, tell us a bit about what you do. Calsters is the California Teachers Retirement System. So we cover all public school teachers and community college teachers in the state of California. About a million members, literally from the Mexican border all the way up to Oregon. It's a big group, a lot of different school districts. I run the investment portfolio. I've been there a long time, been over 20 years running the investment portfolio. We're $300 billion in assets number two in the USA and probably number 11 or so in the world right now. Obviously, you cover private markets in addition to public markets. This podcast is focused on private markets. Many pension plans have been pretty big pioneers in investing in alternatives. How have you approached investing in alts? It's interesting. Calsters, number one, we're really old. We were founded in 1913, so we're older than Social Security. The public pension plans started primarily in public markets because in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they literally only owned bonds and a few stocks. Starting in 82, California passed a law, we diversified. David Swenson and Yale are really the pioneers of moving into alternative and illiquid investments. STIRS started with a little bit of real estate in the early 80s and just did a little bit of private equity starting in the late 80s. When I got there in 2000, we probably were about 5% in real estate and 3% in private equity. I came from the state of Washington, which has a long, rich history in private equity. So I intentionally encouraged the board to shift more of the portfolio into private markets, illiquid investments. Right now, today, we're almost 40%. Infrastructure, I would include in that illiquid basket. We don't consider hedge funds a particular asset class. We look at the underlying strategy. And we've done things like activist managers, different strategies that people put under the word alternative. 
but obviously that's a broad category. How have you approached the alt space and what has that evolution looked like? We know that pension plans are now investing more directly or through co-investments. How have you evolved the alt investment program over time? I would say it's kind of true to our nature. Education, education, education. I've got a 12-member board of three elected officials that are statewide elected officials, actually some public school teachers right out of the classroom. So it's all deep education. We really study what we're going to do, explain it to them, make sure they're comfortable, tell them what we're going to do, then do it, and then tell them what we did. And I would say that's been a slow growth. So we started with real estate, buying buildings, and actually a building we occupied. The move into private equity started with very large buyout funds, but very slow, gradual growth, particularly in areas that people would consider hedge funds. We looked at that as risk mitigating strategies. I think what we try to do is peel back the layer of the legal structure, whether it's a partnership, whether it's a hedge fund contract structure with blocks in it, and really look at what's the underlying investment philosophy. How does that fit in our portfolio? What are the return characteristics? Like I said, today we're almost a little bit over 40% in private markets exposure. I think that's probably our limit because we're a mature plan and we pay a lot of cash flow. Well, you started investing in alts at a time when the hedge fund private equity industries were sub-trillion dollars of collective AUM. Now they're significantly larger Blackstones, almost a trillion dollars itself, 800 plus billion or so. How has your evolution as a firm in terms of the types of things you're investing in? Are you investing in things beyond just private equity, big buyout funds, hedge funds? How has that evolved as the evolution of the alt space more generally has involved? Well, in a lot of ways, we've grown with that space. Our portfolio increased from $100 billion when I was there all the way up to $300 billion, as I said now. But in addition, I've been pretty outspoken that to me, hedge funds are not a, an asset class. And like I said, the word alt is really broad and that's the challenge. It's an alternative to bonds and equity. Well, that includes things like real estate that a lot of people would think are pretty traditional. For us, it's been looking at the underlying structure because I don't view hedge funds as an asset class. We look at whether they are equity-based, long, short would be equity beta, fixed income, any of the products. You have things like global macro, trend following, and the activist managers that have different strategies that can then fit into a portfolio. When you think about hedge funds, we only use two of the 25 different strategies, and we use them in an asset class called risk mitigating strategies because the ones we use are very different than equity. So it adds value to the portfolio. Traditionally, people have thought about the 60-40 portfolio, equities, fixed income. That's now changing as alts, depending on how you define it, are becoming a larger part of people's asset allocation strategy. How would you think about asset allocation? You mentioned that hedge fund may have an equity component, so they may be linked to equity markets, whether it's public or in the case of private equity funds, private markets, but that's still equity exposure. So how do you think about asset allocation and portfolio construction holistically? Let me give you two answers. One, I find it fascinating. People still refer to the 60-40. I think that was the trust fund approved asset mix in the 1970s and 80s. But when I talk to people even in, that are 70 years old or 80 years old, and I look at their portfolio, they're practically 80-20 and you look at most pension plans, they're 80-20. So first I'll push back on the 60-40. I think even a conservative plan is gonna be 70-30, 70% equity-like, 30% debt-like. 
But you're right. When you overlay that with privates, what you really have to look at are alternative investments is the underlying characteristics. So what we do is if you think about traditional asset allocation as the face side of a coin, we flip it over on the tail side and look at what are the characteristics? How much of the portfolio is exposed to economic growth? How much is exposed to interest rates? What's exposed to inflation? Same coin, but just a different lens and a different perspective. And it helps you then analyze those alts risk irregardless of, like I said, business structure and contract structure and really look at the portfolio through both lenses. And it really helps when the economy goes through booms or busts to then have that kind of diversification. So let's fast forward to today on that point. We now live in a very different interest rate environment and inflation environment than we did even just a year ago. How has that impacted the way that you're investing now? Inflation, after we went through 08 crisis and the government inflated the balance sheet, the Fed did, textbooks told us that they're probably going to inflate their way out of it. Did not happen. But way back then, we created an inflation-sensitive asset class. Again, not a traditional asset class, but a bucket of different strategies, some public, some private, where the common characteristic is they're a bit correlated to inflation. We grew that slowly because inflation was so low for so long. But thankfully, we started ramping it up about two years ago. And you have things like commodities that react immediately to inflation, but then you have slow things like infrastructure that react to prolonged inflation. That's giving us some help in the portfolio. It's not a huge chunk of the portfolio. So there's really very little way to protect against long, hard, prolonged inflation. Stocks are going to give you a boost at the beginning of an inflation cycle. But I think in this looking at the next 10 years, that's really going to be one of the huge challenges for funds is inconsistent, but yet some high level of persistent inflation. Because when you look at what I believe is a huge energy transition we need to make in the next 20 years, Unfortunately, almost every characteristic of that is inflationary. When you think about something like energy transition, there are different ways in which you can access that. You can do it through public markets. You can do it through private market strategies, whether it be venture or buyout. You could do it through infrastructure, real estate. How are you approaching something that's such a macro trend like inflation? How do you think about that across the different tools that you can use as a way to access that and then generate returns for your investors? Yeah, I think of a multiple choice question there, and I'm going to check the bottom one, all of the above. We literally are going to use every tool in the toolkit. For us, if you remember back to the book, Megatrends, we view this as a megatrend. And I'm from California, so I like to talk about surfing and waves. And I literally taught my staff a recent class about the energy transition as a mega wave. We're a big fund, so we're a long board. We got to paddle. We got to get up to speed. Timing is critical because you can't be too far ahead of that wave because you get crushed. If you're too far behind, you're going to miss it. And what we want to do is start building up that energy transition of carbon mitigation, but then also new energy sources. And there's going to be a huge demand for consistent long-term capital, which is what we are, long-term patient capital, because you're going to have to build out an infrastructure to, to convert from a carbon energy source to something else. So for us, we look at this as, like you said, venture and the new energy sources, but also all the way back to just consistent infrastructure opportunities. We've overlaid our whole portfolio with this theme of a mega trend of the energy transition. 
So we have some in private equity, some in real estate, some in infrastructure, in global equity, even in fixed income. It literally is like an atmosphere around our whole asset allocation. As a very large fund with very large asset base and a lot of resources and the ability to access, whether it be managers or companies, direct investments, real estate investments, how do you think about how you access something like energy as an example, and you need to get up to speed very quickly in terms of investing directly, investing in funds. How do you approach that process? Well, as an investor, you have to know your strengths and weaknesses. We are big. So my surfing analogy, we're a long board. We're not gonna get up to speed fast. It's gonna take time. We have to be patient. We're not nimble and gonna be cutting around like an endowment fund or a high net worth fund. And for us, we're going to be doing business with some of the largest firms and talking to them. But we also want to sprinkle into our portfolio some of the smallest firms that are thinking about these things. And so literally, it is a spectrum of investment opportunities from venture all the way back to infrastructure into even fixed income and private credit throughout the cap structure. Because for us, it's a theme, just like demographics, with something that we're just going to be looking at throughout the portfolio in terms of risk mitigation, but then also an investment opportunity. How do you think about the trend as a pension plan of investing in managers versus doing things directly and co-invest? Is that a trend that you think will continue as pension plans continue to be large and also maybe want to exert fee pressure on managers as well? Yeah, it's really interesting. That's where hierarchy of size helps and in some cases hurts. When I do business with a small manager, it's really hard for me because I'm a huge footprint in their business. But you're right. Looking at the Canadians and some of the sovereign wealth funds, we can take advantage of our size and actually own asset managers. Now, I've got to recognize I'm a division of the state of California. So I'm a government, even though I'm a money manager, I'm a government entity. You're not going to use government as the right business model to become an investment manager, but we can own parts of money managers and then work through them. We could do co-investments in our portfolio or through partners. So a matter of looking and being open, we actually call it the collaborative model, which again is a very broad word, but we want to be open to all kinds of different business strategies and structures that allow us to team up, pair up. The one thing I don't want to do is bid against another firm. But if I can team up with the government of Singapore or Canadian Public Pension Plan, instead of competing in the auction with them, but actually team up with them, that's so much more advantageous for both of us. So we are talking to those big firms. They are an important relationship to us. We're one of many big clients to them. But we're always looking at new ways to do business and new structures. As I've said for a long time, to me, the 2 and 20 model is broken and gone. And we are always looking for ways to take advantage. From that perspective, if you put on the asset manager's hat, how should they be thinking about their business model going forward if it's no longer 220? You've got to realize there's a whole scale within their business model. In some cases, they're talking about going out and trying to go after public retail money. So... There are different business models for different levels of clients. We're at that upper tier with the sovereign wealth funds or some of the largest pension plans in the world, where it's more about teaming up and doing business together as peers. In other cases, then they're selling a product and that's going to be priced at a different level. It's a matter of just knowing your marketplace, what's an advantage to you, that they also want to be at different parts of the marketplace 
and finding opportunities for their synergy. You mentioned something which is a trend we're seeing in the alt space, which is the retailization of alts. So large asset managers like Blackstone, I think they want 50% of their capital base to come from the retail high net worth channel in the next two, three years. You're obviously in a very different spot, but I wonder if there are certain ways of thinking that can inform the individual investor or their intermediary, the wealth manager, as to how they can think about investing in alts. How would you as an allocator to alts for many years, obviously an institution with different capabilities than an individual or a wealth manager, what advice would you give to them as how they can invest in alts as individuals or wealth managers? The jury is still out. I am really not certain. I know that private investments make sense in long-term retirement accounts, so IRAs, but I have seen time and again where that's a heck of a challenge when you get down to high net worth and other types of investors where liquidity becomes a challenge. I understand why they want to get into the retail space, higher profit margins, higher fees, but also a much more diversified base, harder to know your client. And then there are intermediaries in the way that then do they know their client and understand their structure. We'll see how this works out. I'm sure there are going to be lots of bumps in the road. Having been at the early stages of private equity where it was us, we were the limited partners and we had a general partner. It's a partnership. We like that structure. Now that you've brought in and most of these companies have gone public, now there's a third party in the room. And if you then provide a retail product, now there's a fourth party in the room. I'm kind of jealous. I liked it when it was just us and it was called private equity. Now, if we get into some kind of a retail public product that has very uncertain cash flows, it's going to change the dynamic. It spreads their attention. They're no longer just focused on us as the client. I understand why they do it because it spreads their revenue. It increases their business opportunity. But let's recognize that in almost any alternative investment either has gates or some illiquidity feature it is not suitable for everybody. And we know through time that suitability is a real challenge in the retail space. So long-winded answer, but I'm cool and cautious. I would constantly go back to my advice would be education, education, rule 405, know thy client. And I don't think that happens enough these days. You bring up a really interesting point. As managers transition to attracting retailer, retail high net worth capital, it changes their capital base, changes their business, how they think about things differently. Circling that back to the institutional investor like yourself, how will you then approach alt managers and will you look at things differently or will you do things differently going forward given that there's a new trend happening in the alt space from the type of investors participating? To us as a long-term institutional investor, to me, it, it adds some business risk because then they can be more subject to liquidity demands and flows in and out. They're suddenly spreading their perspective of clients and needs. It's adding a layer of cost, but then also adding a layer of revenue. I think it's a trend that's inevitable. It's going to happen. We can't fight it. We just have to be aware of it and really focus in on the right structures. We already have equity products where there's a competing mutual fund on the other side. We've established rules and regulations on how our separate account is treated versus the mutual fund. We'll probably end up having to do that in the alternative space. And there will certainly be potholes. And then there'll be some that maybe will be successful. We'll see. But it is an inevitable trend that is going to take place. What worries you most about the alt space right now? I think in the alt space, it's fees. I've not ever been a huge fan of regulation, but there's just complete lack of regulation. The poor uh, SEC, uh, CFTC are so far behind in understanding and the proliferation of products. The one thing that people have to understand within alternatives is such a broad word. 
When you think about mutual funds, performance of an equity mutual fund is pretty tightly compacted in the Morningstar universe. But in almost any alternative investment, the difference between the top performing fund and the bottom performing fund is shocking and eye-opening. And Jenny Johnson from Franklin Templeton just said it best, which is the people that demand a high price are the top succeeding ones and probably don't need access to retail. They may want a little bit, but not a lot. The people who want access to retail are probably the underperforming ones. They're going to be on sale. And those are the funds, frankly, you don't want. The reason we call it alternatives, it's an alternative to equity or an alternative to fixed income. If the bottom performing managers don't beat the S&P 500 or the broad market, why are you there in the first place? Other than it's cool. I think people have to constantly step back and look at the big picture of don't add alternatives just because it's supposed to be in the portfolio. Add it because it's a creative and it's going to add value, either reduce your risk, increase your return, or hopefully do both. We've talked about why individuals or wealth managers are investing in alts, but in reality, they may already have some exposure through platforms like yourself. Oh, they do. <laughs> yes. As a really long-term investor, in my case, our fund is like a 35-year-old teacher who's going to teach for another 20 years and then still be alive for 30 years in retirement. So an extremely long horizon. And if you own the broad market, then you own a Blackstone and you own many of the public companies already that are private equity firms. On that point, how does the rise of the individual investor and access to markets directly, and whether it's alts or not, it could be public markets as well, has that impacted how you approach asset allocation on behalf of your constituents? Because they may be investing themselves directly into other things. We have lowered the expected outperformance in some of the alternative spaces as they have become more commercialized and uh, taken on under asset pools. We still assume in many of the cases that there is some of an illiquidity premium, but that could be eroded if you see more and more retail investors in that space. This is fascinating. I always like to end this podcast with what someone's most interesting or favorite alternative investment is. Do you have one? I have to say my most favorite one, and I talk about it a lot, is infrastructure. Not very exciting, very low stable returns, but that's exactly what we're looking for. Some of my favorite infrastructure is the cables that run from New Jersey and Long Island into Manhattan. We own many of those. They're buried well down in the mud. Nobody knows they're there, but they provide electricity every day and we get paid for that. So that's the kind of investment I like. Below the visibility and steady, consistent, long-term cash flows. It's a great metaphor for all the work that you're doing at Calsters. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going-